So we're talking about self-care today. Kind of a corollary to self-care is vacations. Lauren, do you have any cool vacations coming up or have you taken any lately that you're super into? Oh, I just posted on Facebook about the fact that I don't go on vacation. I always save my vacation days thinking I'm going to save them for something special and then I don't. Um, March, I have spring break from grad school. And so I've been toying with the idea of going back to New Orleans. I haven't been down there since college. But maybe now that I've said it out loud, you guys can be my accountability buddies and actually make me do it because I always talk myself out of it. Oh, accountability buddies. I <laughs> love New Orleans. Let's go. Let's just go. to. Okay. Here, here's a challenge. If we have any fans in New Orleans, message us a compelling and sad life story about how Shira speaks to you, and then we'll come interview you, and then I can like somehow write off a trip to New Orleans. Make it an excuse yeah. for us to go and say, that'll help me too, because then I could say, I'm working, and then there won't be all the angst that I have about taking breaks. <laughs> all right, this is real. Any New Orleans people out there, hit us up. We'll come talk to you and then go drink and stuff. I have a side story about New Orleans. So the last, I always take road trips with my buddies Troy and John. And uh, one of our themes on a road trip is Troy always has a sweet tooth for some new thing. So that's culminated in him making the Instagram account Pies Across America, which you may have seen, which is a really funny account where he takes pictures of pies, gives them little backstories as though they're the like old ladies who bake the pies. So anyway, before that, we were in New Orleans and he was really into crepes that year. You think New Orleans is a great place to get crepes. So we ask uh, one of the uh, casino workers where we're hanging out, like, hey, what's a good place to get crepes in New Orleans? And they go, oh, well, IHOP just started serving crepes. <laughs> so <laughs> hooray for New Orleans, everybody. All right. Let's go all the way there to eat at IHOP. <laughs> yeah. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shira Progressive of Power for another week. I'm Eric. And I am Lauren. And this is our first actual two parter, even though we said earlier in the season we'd have a two parter. This is it. So we're talking for another week about In the Shadows of Mysticor. Why is that, Lauren? Well, this episode has a lot to offer, and there was a couple of different angles we could have taken it with. Uh, last week, we sort of did a continuity tribute to the 80s Shira conversation about the characters and what crossed over between the old and the new. But there are some other important themes in this episode that we didn't get to touch on before, one of them being uh, self-care and trauma recovery. The kind of core of this episode is that Adora can't take a break. She can't relax. She's haunted by Shadow Weaver and the memories of the Fright Zone and uh, kind of unintentionally, her friends are jerks about it for a while, and they try to get her to relax in their way, maybe instead of hers. And in the end, she does get to take a break. So we're going to talk about self-care and relaxation today. And to do that, we have a very special guest, our first returning guest, in fact, so that's really cool. But this speaks very closely to her area of expertise, I believe. Welcome back, Rachel Megabo. Hello. Rachel was with us during, was it our holiday special? Our, our first, our, yeah, our live when we watched the He-Man and She-Ra Christmas special. Uh, that's still one of my favorite days. I'm so glad you're back. Thank you. I'm really glad to be back. I really like love the podcast, and Shira was so huge for me growing up, and the reboot's been really huge for me in both like my professional world and my like personal fun world. Liking to share it with my students and like also getting to like 
um, experience it for myself again. All right. I want to know about both of those things. So let's start with the personal because I think we'll follow professional through the episode. How has this impacted you personally? That's really cool. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, Shira was just huge for me as a kid. Um, all my I had all male friends um, growing up for a chunk of it. And we always played He-Man and Shira, And I was always Shira because I was the only girl. And the reboot for me, just in seeing all the different changes, like in the way that things get in complex, get into the complexity of it. Um, I encountered Noel Stevenson through Nimona first and foremost, and then seeing what what's been done with the series. I think it provides such a good base for the discussion of so many different things, um, especially like this episode and other ones after and before it get into a lot of social emotional things. And for me personally, that's been really amazing to see and experience and get to process. Um, and just really get to enjoy a cartoon that I feel like isn't even is better in different ways than what I grew up with, which is really fun. That's awesome because Lauren and I have talked about how even though we love the show a lot, like emotionally, we don't know if we're anchored to any one character as much as like there's bits and pieces of each character we connect to. But it seems like this has really spoken to you in a in a pretty deep way, which is awesome. Yeah, no, I always say like I feel like. I was thinking about it, especially when I was getting ready for this podcast. I think for me, Adora is and has been throughout the series the character I really suture to and anchor to and like have kind of identified myself with in a really in a way that I think like probably colors a bit of how I saw this episode. Awesome. Yeah, I, I have gone on record as saying that a BuzzFeed quiz told me I was Adora, but I feel more like a bow. Lauren, did you take the quiz? I took the quiz and I was bow, but I really disagree with that. I really am a cynical person and I don't like many other humans so that had to have been a mistake <laughs> so yeah Lauren identifies with the mom which is super telling in its own way yeah we talked about this I most identify with Angela and I think that says some really beautiful and sorrowful and deep things about me and it also makes me want to boss around everyone around me I want to control my friends I'm sorry do you like rules yeah structure hell yeah so <laughs> Okay, that's so awesome that the show has spoken to you personally. Let's talk about professionally. So first, can you tell us what it is that you do? I want to point out, I don't mean to interrupt, I'm sorry, but I want to thank Rachel because uh, she reached out to us and said, this resonates with me and my work so much that I have so much to say about it. And uh, it's, it's rare that someone takes the initiative in that way. And so I'm really excited to hear the answer to Eric's question. What do you do for a living? (laughs) Thank you. Um, So I'm a school psychologist. Um, I work at a um, larger suburban high school, um, not far from the city of Chicago. Um, I work with high school students and I work with students everywhere from kind of, because of what I do in special education, I work from students all the way from like the age of 14 to the age of 22 with a variety of needs. I work with students who may struggle academically, students who struggle emotionally and all that kind of way in between. I do a lot of individual counseling and group counseling as well as testing. And I think a big thing in the school psych world that we've seen as I've kind of started through grad school, one of my big areas of interest is in trauma and in crisis management and school crisis prevention, intervention, and postvention. Um, It's really been an area where I've put my energy and my research. Um, I did research kind of growing up through grad school on homelessness and specifically like how the law is designed to help folks with it or how in their lived experience it doesn't. And so trauma and kind of exploring the impact that has on people, like not just traumatic events, but long-term and enduring trauma has, um, has really been big professionally. And I felt like this episode to me gave a lot of good instances to people who especially like younger folks who might be watching it like a better understanding of what that can look like 
and then maybe also some starting with, well, how can we support our friends who've experienced this? How do I experience this? And like, how do generally, I think, be better at being gentle with folks who've experienced trauma? So we had a, a CPS school psychologist on in the first season, uh, Aaron Hozek, in what has, has become my favorite episode of the, of our show so far. You talk about Aaron all the time. Well, I, was just, Aaron, I love that episode so much. Are you trying to steal my work husband? Is that what you're saying? Because Aaron and I are like, we go to conferences together. Aaron and I went to grad school together. We're like, we're buddies. Well, and it's perfect. But Aaron, uh, from my memory, works with younger kids, right? Mm-hmm. He's in, in grade school. Yes. And so now we're getting a slightly older perspective, which is great because I think this Princess of the Power is a bit more sophisticated than Princess of Power as far as this issue goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Some of the characters on this show, in fact, land like right in the age of the people you work with. Do you mm-hmm. see your students in these characters? Oh my gosh, so much. It's been really funny when, because some of my students even asked me about it when it comes up and it's really fun to ask them like who their favorite characters are. Um, so many of my girls think Bo is the best, um, which makes me really happy. Or well, some of my li- I know, like I really actually really, um, I've even been recommending it to some of my students and one of the faculty sponsors for our um, Gender and Sexuality Alliance. And so I'm always really excited to hear what my students in there have to say about their favorite characters or how they love the series. Have any of your students said Angela is their favorite character? I'm, I'm waiting for that one. I think that one's just slightly above None her, of her the students are 32. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some of them think of themselves as the unofficial mom. So I'm really curious. I, I should actually ask that explicitly. So you said that you use uh, princesses of power in, in your work life. How does that come up? It comes up. So I'm a very proud and openly identified, like, nerdy person. My office has various different fandoms that I'm into in it in, like, small ways. And so a lot of students, I think, when we're talking about difficult emotional topics, for a lot of folks, talking about it through fiction or identifying where that's come up in another story is a way that sometimes makes it easier because you're not talking directly about your personal experience, but you're using something that's adjacent to help you get to the words that you need for it. Because with a lot of folks who've experienced, particularly with trauma, we see um, a lot of neuroscience has shown that the Broca's area, which is the part of your brain that deals with language, shuts down when you're experiencing either an ep- um, a trigger when you've kind of getting back into that mindset or when the event is occurring shuts down, which makes it tough for you to develop words for your experiences. That's amazing. Yeah, I I totally get that. It's the kind of power that fiction has in general is like it prevents or it presents this abstraction that we can all uh, kind of see ourselves then and work through things. But to hear that applied in a clinical way is, is really fascinating. Oh, that's such an interesting thing to think about in context of this episode, too, because we see Adora full on struggling with her words. And I guess when I watched this episode, I thought she was being really withholding for the sake of others. You know, she didn't want to be a burden on her friends. She didn't want to be embarrassed in front of them. But to know that there's an actual like clinical neuro reason for that adds another layer that makes it seem like a very realistic portrayal of what she was going through. Very much so. That was, I mean, when I first saw the episode, I was the person, bless the person I was watching it with, because I literally, and they're another helping professional. Um, I turned to them, I was like, this is all about trauma. And they just looked at me and we shared that, that nod of like, yes, this is what the experience is here. Um, and so much of it, even going back through it and watching it again and seeing just how Adora responds to things were really good ways to illustrate the different ways that people can respond to being triggered. I know triggered is such a word that we're currently struggling with in pop culture, and I still think it's such an important word to use because it's such a real and valid experience. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting when, when Lauren first said, but you, you came to us and said, hey, I want to talk about this episode. 
And I was like, oh, that's fascinating because I feel like there's later episodes down the line that deal with trauma. But that's not mm-hmm. – I don't know if that's true as much as I think what we're going to see later – and the episode where we have an eight-year-old on is this, like, cycle of abuse, which mm-hmm. I find really fascinating. But I think a lot of that is actually seated in this episode and in the way that, like, Adora reacts to Shadow Weaver. Mm-hmm. Those lines are really blurred together because we see Adora experiencing hallucinations and emotions related to her past. Mm-hmm. But Shadow Weaver is also still literally present and, mm-hmm. and actively abusing her. So when we see... Uh, visions of Glimmer telling Adora to just go and Catra saying mm-hmm. Shadow Weaver controls us both. Those aren't necessarily, you know, she's not reliving trauma. Mm-hmm. She's experiencing trauma in real time. Mm-hmm. But it loops around because Shadow Weaver is able to create those emotions and create those visions based on how Adora reacted in their relationship in the past. I just wanted her to escape so Adora to escape so badly this whole episode. Well, and that's like the power of, of fiction, right? Is to take this kind of realistic concept and then layer on something a little magical or fanciful that mm-hmm. like because you know your real life abusers don't cast shadow projections to make you feel in the moment like you're less than, but Kind of emotionally, they do, right? Very much so, especially when we look at there's two kind of different pieces when we're talking about trauma, or there's many different pieces. The field of trauma is both very new in a lot of ways. It's old in some ways, it's new in some ways, and there's pieces of it that are still being debated. For example, the concept of complex PTSD, which is where we look at more kind of enduring trauma, for example, like childhood abuse or long-term domestic violence and whatnot, versus more event-based traumas or combat trauma, which combat trauma is often sometimes viewed by, I think, the world at large as being the most legitimate, quote-unquote, form of trauma, whereas other pieces are not held as valid, probably because of the communities they happen to, similar with intergenerational trauma. Um, And so that's the real piece I think of is in this episode really getting to see, I think Shadow Weaver's projections actually do, I agree, do such a great job of showing the long-term effects of what Adora and I think Catra deal with is more in the complex PTSD range. It's enduring, it's long-term, it's very different in some ways from more event-based trauma, and there's ways in which they overlap, like Adora's flashbacks that look, I think the hallucinations are a good way in some ways, but there's also that emotional flashback that she has because they kind of both exist, both a visual flashback, which is what we think of culturally as being what a flashback looks like, and also emotional flashbacks where we kind of emotionally and mentally go back to when X happened or when this situation in our childhood or this piece of, you know, something that happened to us as an adult is going on. And we react physically and mentally and very much emotionally to what that is. I'm so glad you brought up that this is happening to Katra, too. Mm-hmm. I think from a certain perspective, it's easy to dismiss Katra's hurt because throughout this season, Katra is still choosing to stay with the Horde and fight with the Horde. Um, she shows active desire to live in the Fright Zone under Hordak, but... On the second walkthrough of this episode, I noticed that Catra looks at Shadow Weaver with real fear in one scene. It doesn't come out a lot. Normally, Catra is all sarcasm and swagger, but she fears her abuser as well, and she is hurt by what's going on in the life that she's still choosing, and she's just in a different phase than Adora, but it is. It's happening to them both. And that they both have different ways of coping. We see that in children, and we see that in folks who've grown up even in similar abusive homes, that we all develop different coping mechanisms for getting through that. For some people, it's to become kind of on the Adora end, high-achieving people-pleasing. I think of the people who very much 
kind of focus on like needing to get out and the damage that that can also do to those left behind or those who stay behind. Um, I think Catra is such a good example and sometimes of the ways that hurt people hurt people um, and that she's still processing that as well. And that's I think I agree with you on later episodes that really digs into such an interesting way that two people can view a narrative from different perspectives. What's up with you? You're being spookier than usual. My shadow spies have found Adora. She's on her way to Mystical with her new friends. Mystical. This is going to be too easy. Uh, another Adora mission. Fine. When do I leave? The only place you're headed is outside my door to stand guard. I'm going to use my magic to go after Adora myself. You will see that I'm not disturbed. Clearly, no one else can be trusted to bring her back to the Horde. Least of all, you. Now go. I said go! The damage that Adora causes in this episode really broke my heart because her hurt and the way that her hurt sort of makes her lash out ends up involving people in her trauma that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been involved. So she ends up destroying some sacred writings in that like uh, eclipse sort of lens room. And that causes Aunt Costa to go, what kind of friends are you bringing around here? Like what kind of people are these? And Costa Spella starts and ends on Adora's side, but that relationship gets put in real danger because of just sort of Adora's recovery process, and it's so sad. It really is, and I thought it was. It's tackling a really hard issue of accountability and understanding in terms of our response when we have a trauma response to a situation that is not a situation that's appropriate to have that response in. Because there's times I always think like Adora's hypervigilance is very actually like makes sense to me in some ways because they are in an active war. Like, right. Like they're like, you just don't need to ignore they're here. I'm like, but you're in a war. She's not being entirely irrational. Exactly. But it's not in a con- But again, when she goes to Mysticore overall, it's generally speaking not a context where those behaviors would fit. That we do when we experience those pieces do things that damage relationships or property or ourselves and that we can offer understanding and compassion in that and still be accountable for the damage that we do. Um, I think it's where the compassion comes in is that setting boundaries that saying like, hey, this wasn't okay is compassionate. Like, yes, maybe um, Angosta could have done something a little good, done that a little Differently, but I think also we're always allowed to have our reactions to things, and we can look back and say, I could have done this differently if I knew more. But you're allowed to be angry if someone destroys thousands of years of old writing. Speaking of relationships with traumatized people, do we ever see Glimmer and Bo apologize to Adora in this episode? Because I feel like, you know, Adora owes people an apology. She certainly owes Castaspella an apology for breaking her ancient relics, but. Glimmer is such a jerk to Adora at the beginning of this episode. Adora um, has a moment of panic in the woods, and Bo and Glimmer are like, did you see a bunny? Was it a butterfly? And I think at the end, once we realize Shadow Weaver was literally pursuing us, maybe you loop back to your friend and you say, I'm sorry I didn't believe you, and I understand why you were having the reactions you were having. I don't think that happened in this episode, and it was disappointing. Agreed. I think, and I mean, I think it was also like, 
I was really sad they didn't come back around to that too because I made so many notes about both of them being dismissive. I find Glimmer a little more dismissive than I find Bo overall. Like Bo, especially when Adora's telling a little piece of her trauma narrative, she's not giving them the whole thing. But she tells them little bits, but I feel like Bo gets it a little bit more than Glimmer does in some ways. But I found them both to be a bit more dismissive. And in some ways, it's also because they didn't have the whole story. Like, I realized as I'm sitting there watching Adora tell them about Shadow Weaver and getting very choked up myself about that whole scene. I realized then, I was like, that's the first time we've really heard her tell them, I think, about anything really about Shadow Weaver and who she really was in Adora's life. And so in some ways, they are really dismissive. In a way that's maybe, I would definitely agree, not helpful and they should loop around and apologize for. And also they didn't have all the information. So it's hard to be, it's balancing that's hard to be supportive with all the information. Also understanding you're not owed all of the information about someone's life and someone's trauma. Sure. It's always a a two-way street. You're responsible Mm -hmm. for your own feelings. You're responsible for the actions you take when you're experiencing those feelings. But the people who care about you I think, anyway, have some sort of responsibility for building an environment where you feel safe and you feel like there is trust. And I, Glimmer especially, could do a little bit better. Definitely. But I see that they also have in some ways because Adora uses that, I feel like, to come back from when she's facing Shadow Weaver. One of the ways that um, the books that I've read about it talk about us, talk about folks recovering from trauma or moving on or moving forward or doing work around it in in life is building secure connections. And that even if kind of initially we don't start out great with connections, that other positive social supports and connections can help us with that. And so I see that even if she didn't have a secure base growing up, she's really making one with Bone Glimmer. And they're not always a Attuned. So attunement is that process of understanding people's needs and being able to meet them. And we all have missteps with that. Um, and But if we have a secure base of trust with people, knowing that they generally can meet our needs and we can be good enough for them and vice versa, we're then better able to ground ourselves out. Um, and I see that with her response to Shadow Weaver when she looks at them and sees them there. And she's like, no, wait, these are my friends. So even if they haven't been great in this episode, she still seems to have a sense of home with them. Well, that's kind of an interesting question that it, it touches on both continuity and real life is, is Shadow Weaver a known quantity? Because it seems like they just don't even believe that anybody could do these things that Adora is saying. Uh, cast a spell, I should know better. Probably. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's it's like when you tell your friends this thing happened and maybe if your friends aren't the most supportive, they're like, they, they don't even process that you could be telling the truth. Like, it just seems so fanciful. Sure, someone controls shadows. Okay. There's a magical presence following you. But it's true. It's all true. Well, it's because trauma requires believing people who have been tra- believing people, believing survivors requires us on a fundamental level to suspend what we think is normal. We believe overall humans want to believe that the world makes sense. If you do X, Y, and Z, bad things generally don't happen to you. And to hear and receive that requires us to suspend that sense of normalcy, which is really uncomfortable. Here. I saw her. Adora, there's no one else here. You brought your sword in here? Are you okay? What happened? Shadow Weaver was here in the grotto and she was in the Sorceress Hall too. I saw her shadow on the floor. What are you talking about? Who is Shadow Weaver? Shadow Weaver raised me in the horde. She taught me how to read and tie my boots and how to subvert the enemy and be victorious in battle. Okay, sure. Mom stuff? No, commanding officer stuff. And mom stuff. Adora, she isn't here. She was never here. It's not possible. But you, you don't know what she's capable of. Sounds like this shadow weaver really did a number on you growing up. 
But you're okay now. You got away from her. Do you want to try something else? We could get massages, or we could find you something to hit, if that would work better. No, it's okay. I'm okay. I, I think I need to be alone. Clear my head. You sure? Yeah. So we can actually, I think, take a break from the heavier discussion because in the last episode, uh, part one of this, I never got around to just the stuff that I thought was pretty cute and interesting in this episode. And I'd like to do that for a second. Yes, please. So number one, I noticed that Bo has hearts on the bottom of his boots and that is dope and so fresh and so fly. You're looking good. What nice boots. I want them. Also, can we talk about Bo's top when they get into the, uh, I loved that Bo also had a top on when they got into the spa and all the cuddles. Like, I will be so happy about that as long as I live. Absolutely. I do have a question about something I noticed, and that was that Glimmer in that same scene has little wings on her back. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I I want to know the nature of those because... There's a world where it's like a cute tattoo thing, which I think is a little, she's a little young for that. So I'm wondering if it's actually biological, like a part of her mother. And is she going to grow up to have wings or be an angelic being? Because that would be super cool if that's like an arc she goes through later in a future season. So I took it to be the latter, except that someone, I forget which character made a comment about, oh, it was Aunt Casta said that um, Angela is... Uh, immortal, implying that she is not. So did the immortality skip Glimmer, and is this as much as she gets, or will she become an immortal angel warrior? Can you be a half-immortal? What does that mean? Right. Well, sure, because King Micah is probably just a dude. I, I would guess that Casta is King Micah's brother. Yes, they mm-hmm. established that. Or sister, that. yeah. Yeah. Um, I compare this to the a visual from the comic saga in which uh, the main characters have a child, the the mother has wings, the father has horns, and the child has both. But the wings that the baby develops are completely unique from her mother's. So Alana has like bugish sort mm-hmm. of um, iridescent wings, but uh, Hazel, the kid, has more bird-like wings, and so. It's just fantasy genetics. Like, what happens when you have angelic being and human king? I, I, I hope they explore it further. So, Rachel, you mentioned uh, that to accept trauma... People who are told about it are asked to suspend a sense of normalcy, to accept that something could be real, even though they haven't themselves experienced it. Mm-hmm. And so let's do a little thought experiment, because this is still a progressive political show, I believe, uh, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> P.S. I love that we had the other political Shira writer on last week and didn't really Barely talk about politics talked about at all. politics. Okay, so my question with the suspended sense of normalcy is, do we see this reflected politically? Do people refuse to accept trauma on a social or generational scale because they themselves haven't observed it or they think that they haven't? Or are they themselves traumatized and refusing to recognize it? I'm thinking about cases like the book What's the Matter with Kansas, which Mm -hmm. convincingly argues that we have whole swaths of people, typically the working poor, who vote against their own best interests because they have been lied to and duped. 
Uh, it's probably wrong to phrase that as a binary, but I'm curious to your response to that. Completely. I feel like we see this so often in so many ways. Um, if we want to talk about even, I don't want to say like a micro level, but if we, I think one good illustration, if I can come up with a few, one of them is definitely um, if we look at the Kavanaugh hearings and the inability to believe women coming forward and saying something that this happened. People saying, well, it didn't, you know, people even from the same school saying, well, it didn't happen to me with this person. So it must not have happened ever. Um, I think we see it, especially when we talk about intergenerational trauma, which there's great studies coming out about the effects of intergenerational trauma. The initial studies were done uh, by my understanding based on my research. Again, I'm more than willing to be wrong about things. I do not know everything, um, contrary, to po- contrary to my own thinking sometimes. Um, <laughs> I was told you knew everything. This podcast is over. Oh, man. I really, I really hyped you up as knowing everything. Uh, it's my fault. I own that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but some of the initial studies on intergenerational trauma were conducted by researcher Rachel Yehuda, who, of course, because she shares my first name and she's also Jewish, I have to, sh- I have to hold on to that. Um, uh, on intergenerational trauma fa- were done on children of Holocaust survivors um, who were showing increased mental health symptoms in spite of not having any of the experiences of it. I think that believing intergenerational trauma, especially there's more research being done, especially on the effects in different communities. So branching out into how does that look in the black community in America? How does that look in First Nations communities in America? Or I even think about, you know, Japanese Americans specifically who experienced internment. Like there are so many different examples in American history of intergenerational trauma that we don't talk about, we don't believe, we don't think about. You know, we have Andrew Jackson up in the White House, up, you know, when they're talking to Navajo um, code speakers. Code breakers? Code breakers, thank you. My brain. Um, I was thinking code switching and code breaking at the same time, apparently. Ignoring that, like, yes, like the, yes, let's put this president who created, you know, who perpetuated genocide in America right here. Like, that's not, we're just going to pretend none of that happened. Press photos. Exactly. We're just going to pretend that didn't happen because we as Americans, I think, think of genocide as something that happens somewhere else. We don't think of it as things that happen here. And we don't think of that systemic oppression as things that happen here, especially like as white folks in America. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think the biggest problem with racial inequality is that racial inequality. <laughs> no. Um, oh, uh, that's a weird. <laughs> um, Some racials are cooler than others. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with racial inequality is that so many people, especially white people and especially people of means, think that racism ended in 1966. They think Dr. King got shot and the country changed and now no one's racist. And that's so wrong because it's not a binary. It's a system of it's an insidious system that eeps into all of our interactions and it is traumatic you've ghettoized an entire race of people for well since they've been free from slavery until now of course that's traumatic and even that these things weren't that long ago in american history right. i think some people who like i think folks of color have seen a really great uh time like i think in hearing more of those narratives and trying to listen more to that um, you know, that it's not as long ago, especially as like white America, like we like to think in white America that it was like, like, oh, what do you mean? Like segregation ended so long ago. Or what do you mean? Slavery was so long ago. Like 
it's like a, not. 160 years now-ish, not that long. Not really. And that we've seen through research that the effects of intergenerational trauma, it's called intergenerational trauma for a reason. Like that those effects last throughout different communities. And we carry that. I think in my own, you know, in the Ashkenazic Jewish community, how much that trauma is such, that sense of intergenerational trauma plays into things. I sometimes wonder if the reason why we're seen as the people that have all these somatic complaints is because other generations weren't as good as talking about trauma because trauma first can show up for people who struggle with the words for it or the holding environment for it as physical complaints. My head hurts. My stomach hurts. um, I can't feel a part of my body. Well, and I think there's some way in which expressing um, mental discontent is considered a feat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it probably ties into Maslow's hierarchy of needs a little bit because now that we're at a place socially where we can, you know, supply the bottom levels pretty well because we're technologically advanced, now we can focus on that little top bit of the pyramid that most humans have not been able to do because Ugg and Doug couldn't worry about trauma because they had to kill animals every eight hours or they die, you know? Uh, it's just so fascinating to me. This is such a relatively new thing that humans are learning to cope with. And so many of us don't even recognize that it's valid and important and necessary. Yeah, the distance that you're talking about, whether we're putting time distance saying slavery was so far in the past or literal geographical distance, like, well, Nazi Germany happened in Germany, conveniently forgetting like the Trail of Tears and Japanese Mm -hmm. internment camps and the fact that that happened on our soil too. It gives people an excuse to say, oh, yeah, mental health is totally valid and it's totally a thing. And I totally respect people who are going on that journey. It just doesn't apply to me or anyone I know. And now I have to stop thinking about it and stop talking about it. And so we're simultaneously in a great time in America where so many people are finding the words to say what they're experiencing and openly sharing it. And then we're also having this immense backlash of, well, that's not real here. That's not in my life or my Mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. Well, and I really like what you said earlier about how people tend to think of like the kind of sudden combat uh, like shock is the real trauma and this more like – kind of buzz this like white noise of trauma surrounding you is somehow invalid mm-hmm. because it's just this that like I don't know that feels like a more insidious kind of trauma in a way not to at all um, th- you know throw disrespect on people who have like combat uh, PTSD I certainly don't understand what that's like and I'm sure it's terrible but I don't think that that means that the other type should be any less um, respected. Agreed and it's a piece that we see in looking at the uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Volume 5 versus looking at um, the World Health Organization's ICD-11 um, DSM-5 in spite of from what I read from the Body Keep score again I'm, I'm not on the American Psychiatric Work Association by any means or in the work group that was around trauma-based disorders in there, so I cannot speak to exactly what went on beyond what I've read, Um, was that the work group recommended CPTSD or trauma specifically or like um, there was another disorder around childhood stress specific, like childhood trauma and abuse specifically were both recommended to go forward into the DSM-5 pretty widely by their work groups and then were not included in DSM-5, um, which was really had a lot of backlash to it as well. It's really fascinating to see like the National Institute of Mental Health, the American Psychological Association, and it was a lot of different organizations came out against DSM-5, which I, I was in grad school at the time and was fascinated by it. But ICD-11 does include complex trauma. And I think of it when I look at it dialectically 
is that if we can hold that all of these experiences can be different and valid, um, even if they can't be always recreated in a lab. One of the things that we've seen with trauma and memory is that because those things are, you can't recreate them in a lab. You can't, first of all, ethics. You can't traumatize someone in the lab. Um, things we learned from Little Albert. It's not good to traumatize people in a lab. Slash the Truman Show. Exactly. Like <laughs> things we've learned from. I can cite all of the experiences, <laughs> the experiments as to why we have inter, why we have IRB. Um, is that we can hold that even if we can't see these things in a lab setting, that they're still valid. And that if we can hold that one thing is valid, that doesn't make something else less valid. Um, and expanding that out just helps people have the language to talk about it and be healthier. And I think that it's hard, especially in communities where that lower part of the pyramid isn't being met. There's still, you know, we say there's there's definitely so many swaths in America where those lower needs are not being met. You know, the True. need for, I think about even in like some of the schools where Aaron works, we talk about that a lot, like that it's hard to like, talk about something really complex like emotional health and trauma when like you don't know when you're where your family's gonna sleep tomorrow night or you don't live in an area that's safe right like it's hard to dig into those things when it's just the water you're swimming in and you get to be an adult and you might get somewhere more safe and more stable the problem that i'm seeing well one of many problems (laughs) is that even when you do get those needs you have a roof over your head stable income food we're not kind to people who are well-adjusted and living well either. So this is a big leap, but I've been thinking about it all day. The biggest story in politics right now, aside from the government shutdown that we're in the middle of, is the fact that a video came out of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez having like a great time and dancing in college. And the, the people in the House and the Senate who are Republican keep attacking her over the clothes she's wearing because they look wealthier than the poverty she claims to have risen up from and the makeup she wears because it makes her look more feminine than someone who has struggled the way she has. And now, God forbid, she's dancing and appears to maybe sometimes have a good time. Like, she is such a beacon of what people coming up from poverty and coming up from a traumatizing environment could be, and we're just still stomping on it. So uh, the only point I'm trying to make is that we're not a very supportive society. Like we claim we care about mental health and recovery and supporting one another. But even when we're given an example of someone who suffered and found the tools and seems to really be succeeding, we just hate them too. Because we don't think that poor people deserve self-care ultimately. Like I'm just going to come out and say it. You know, there's all these articles that tell people who are living below the po- – live at or below or on the poverty line like, oh, just cut out your like lattes for a few weeks and you can save all this money. It's like, you know what? Poor people are allowed to have nice things. They were allowed to have video games. They were allowed to have things that let them take care of themselves and cope with the trauma of being a person living in poverty in a country that doesn't actively care. Nora, are you okay? I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I'm finally okay. She's gone. I'm so sorry we didn't believe you. We've been bad friends. No, you're not. This is what Shadow Weaver does. She manipulates people. She pushes them apart. But it's never going to work on me again. I'm sorry. It's my fault she was here. I endangered Mysticor. Nonsense. You saved Mysticor. Glimmer has chosen her friends well. I'll knit you a sweater. What size are you in the shoulders? All right, guys. So while keeping it appropriate, what type of self-care do you most enjoy or how do you relax? Mm. And maybe can you incorporate one this week? 
I'll start. Uh, I enjoy video games, and I'm about to have my grad school classes start up again on Monday. And Lauren during grad school is hyper, hyper structured. I'm putting on my Google Calendar what uh, homework I have to do each night and which chores I have to do each night just to stay afloat. And if I can go put like 20 minutes into my Stardew Valley farm, that is that is self-care for me. And so my fake video game farm is going to get some attention in the name of self-care. I have a hard time totally relaxing. Uh, we can unpack this in another episode, but because of all the things that I have to do all the time, I, I feel like I have to thread the line between self-care and narcissism of like, okay, this is an appropriate amount of relaxation and this is just slothful. But my answer would also be video games. Like I took about 45 minutes to play Smash Melee this morning because I woke up a little early. So that's like my favorite thing to do is I'll probably get up like an hour earlier than I need to and then just play Smash Brothers or something for a little while. Um, that feels really good. Or just like going to bed early. I feel like that is so underrated. Like there's no reason why I have to stay up past 9.30 if I don't want to. If I've had a long day of work, Fuck it. I'm just going to go to bed. I think for me, there's two kind of pieces for me in self-care. One of them is definitely um, doing physical things, things that are um, connecting me with my body, be it. I've actually really um, gotten back into dance. I uh, I love dancing. I've started just like putting in music and just letting myself do like little modern dance routines in my space. Um which I learned going back to visit my aunt. It was going back to visit my own aunt, my own mystical <laughs> aunt. Um, you know, just how much that connecting with my body is really important. It's been really essential for me in my own kind of personal work. Um, the other thing that I do is it's really important for me to often check in physically. So I do this technique called um, observe, describe, and participate, which is from dialectical behavior therapy, which is like my current, my favorite school of therapy, which because I'm a nerd like that, um, where I'm observing what's going on for me physically and thought-wise as well. Then I'm like not saying any words, and then I'm describing it using some words that I start to kind of gather as I note the experiences. And then participate, whether it's like I'm deciding that I'm going to throw myself into whatever activity I'm currently doing, or whether it's like I notice I'm really like my, I've got a lump in my throat, I've got tears behind my eyes, my thoughts are really rapid. Um, so I'm going to take a moment to cry and let myself be in that emotion. So I think those are two really important kind of self-care and also boring self-care, you know, doing things like, you know, taking care of my apartment. I think boring self-care is really underrated, like just those little daily tasks that actually do help us have more space. Yeah, I totally agree. I finally have an apartment that I like inviting people over to and I like clean it every couple of days now. I just feel like it's so important because you never know when someone's going to drop by and like you want your space to feel good and homey. Mm hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming back and being our first two-time guest ever. Once you hit five times, you get a jacket and you get to meet Steve Martin. Oh, we're nice. Never, Excellent. We're never going to let anyone be on the show five times. <laughs> Just you wait. <laughs> yeah. Well, Steve Martin. Well, he hasn't even been on once yet. Steve Martin's got a long way to go before wait, he reaches five. Is this not Saturday Night Live? No. Eric, are you okay? <laughs> I'd like to thank the band, the cast, Lorne. What a great week. <laughs> See you next Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.